Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. FC. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 31, Unabomb. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And we are in one of our favorite places in North Carolina, Bahama. Out in the country, not Bahama. My mom's house. His mama's from Bahama. <laughs> or his mama's is from Bahama. Um, I especially like it out here because the road that we're on is kind of an abandoned road, although there is a house that has encroached upon the uh, solitude out here. And I love listening to the birds after we record the podcast just to hear who dropped in. <laughs> yeah, and it is a deliciously mild, sunny Black Friday. Mm-hmm. So this podcast is mainly uh, going to talk about the Unabomber, but also about the ideas and writings of Ted Kaczynski and his philosophies. And I thought it was kind of funny the other day, um, Gumby is teaching kids, and this group has a lot of adult supervision. And so I guess you were kind of talking about what you were looking forward to doing this weekend or for the rest of this week, and you had mentioned that you were going to be doing a podcast on Ted Kaczynski. And I said, oh, wow, how did that um, go over with the group of kids and adults? He's like, the, the kids don't even know who that is. And I was like, right, right, because they hadn't even been born <laughs> at all anywhere near uh, the Unabomber's uh, campaign, so to speak. Yeah, and most of the adults, like myself, have no idea who the Unabomber is. That's um, true. They think they do, but I, when we started researching this podcast, I was... Very much surprised. I have a completely different picture of Ted Kaczynski than I did when I put him on our list of possible topics to explore with Escaping Society. Um, I knew he was someone who, um, in his way, tried to escape society, but I now realize how little I understood about what was his way to do it. Yeah, he's pretty brilliant. Um, I'll leave it at that uh, and get kind of started into a little bit of the the facts about his life and his family. But... um, don't worry, we'll get to a lot more interesting stuff too. But I think it, I think it is kind of important and relevant to, to hear a little bit about his life. So he was born in 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. Um, he had kind of an interesting existence growing up just because he was so smart. It's reported that his IQ was 167. And... Um, For example, in high school, he was a member of this little team of kids that were called the briefcase boys because they uh, carried briefcases around school and they were super nerdy in in many ways. He actually went to Harvard at age 16 on a scholarship. And while he was at Harvard, um, he, of course, fell out of place because he was so young. I mean, imagine going to college. And this was back in the 60s. Yeah, I guess so. And before, um, you know, he's part of this generation where science and math was being really pushed, you know, the Sputnik era, where uh, we're trying to compete with the Russians. Mm. So he was known for being a loner when he was a kid. Um, And I think that's an important thing to mention, because, 
you know, that gets used against him a lot by people who are trying to dismiss him as a, a nut. Um, but I'm thinking about, you know, little Ted Kaczynski um, starting to formulate these ideas, this love of nature and this questioning. You know, I, I can empathize with that and how more and more people aren't talking your language, not just because of, you know, I don't know how much I can empathize with the intellect, but uh, Ted was so smart. So on that level, you know, people could, it was hard for him to relate to the kids around him. But then the consumerism, the materialism, you know, Mm. this path that Ted's on more and more and more, people are not speaking his language, intellect aside. Um, Especially in the 50s and 60s when there was just so much, uh, you know, prosper in the economy. Everybody was just on a buying spree and and credit was ramping up. Uh, the and, golden age, TV, fast food, supermarkets, everything's just really starting to roll in the 50s. And he even said that uh, up until he was about 30, he didn't know of any other people that thought like him. He just thought he was a weirdo. Um because he thought in this way, and everybody else was going the opposite way of consumerism. And, and this way being anti-technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was such a, now you don't have to talk very far before you find somebody who can complain about technology, no matter what their actions are. But that's not the environment Ted grew up in, so him being a loner makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and also some say that he was actually pretty social, you know, and friendly until they skipped him ahead two grades. Mm-hmm. So that's when he started really not fitting in. And something else that's brought up about his past that, you know, people like to theorize about, like, what actually made this guy do what he did? Um, I, I find it interesting. I'm not exactly sure what effect it had on him. But while he was at Harvard, he participated in this three-year-long experiment that was dealing with mind control techniques. Um, and the psychology professor that was doing the experiments, I mean, he was known for doing things that were unorthodox and frankly, just inhumane. Yeah. Um, during the experiment, each subject that was in the experiment had a code name. And I thought it was interesting that Ted Kaczynski's code name was lawful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but he, he made it through that, um, not well, a, yeah, go ahead. These experiments were thought to be part of the MK Ultra mm, yeah. um, secret experiments that were uh, done by the CIA to explore mind control. So the CIA did all kinds of shit under this MK, MK Ultra um, code name, mm-hmm. including just pumping people full of LSD, you know, <laughs> like just anything to see how they could control people's minds. This was like part of the height of the Cold War, the the paranoia of the the red threat, the communism, and anything that threatened America, you know. So I thought, like, that kind of blew my mind. I'd heard of MKUltra and then realized that Ted Szynski had been subjected to this experiment. And I guess you're going to talk more about the details of the experiment. Oh, you can um, go ahead and do that because I don't really. Okay, so the details that we researched that we found out where basically Ted was asked to debate with a fellow classmate. You know, they were told they were the best of the best, the smartest. And, of course, Ted being 16 at Harvard, um, a lot of people around him said he was not prepared for that. He wasn't even driving yet. So all people were seeing of Ted was this brain, this walking brain. Mm. And this was an era when this kind of intelligence was to be exploited to the max because we needed to outcompete Russia. Mm-hmm. The you know, Soviets. This 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 haunting ghost of Sputnik that they got a satellite up there before we did was just a 
gas on the fire of American paranoia at the time. Um, so he's debating these ideas, and then he writes an essay. And the experiment, unbeknownst to the participants, are that they would tear apart his essay. They would question him and find things to personally attack him while he's attached to monitors that are monitoring his brainwaves. So they just get as personal and as ugly as they can. And keep in mind what that would be to anyone else. You know, the CIA is trying to explore what happens when you tear somebody down in different ways. Can you put them back together in the way you want them to be put back together? Can you control them through what we're going to find out through this experiment? But Ted, he's 16 years old. You know, he's not only an impressionable young man trying to strive in this academia, this academic world, but he's also dealing with all the things a normal 16-year-old's dealing with. And all of his cherished ideas, his brilliant ideas, are just attacked. And, you know, they're, he's told lies. He's told anything to tear him down using his own ideas against him. And this went on for, I think, 200 hours over the course of three or two or three years, yeah. you know, multiple years. So this was later used by his lawyers. We'll talk more about that Um against Ted's wishes to try to get an insanity plea, saying this was part of what um, made him mentally unstable. To my way of looking at it, Ted's already forming these anti-technology ideas, and you know he's running into all this stuff, this beauty of nature, this, this growing relationship with, with wild nature. And more and more, this razor-sharp mind, this 167 IQ, is noticing how much we're destroying nature in a totally exploitative, unsustainable way, which, of course, has come to pass much more since the time Ted was a young man. Um, and now he comes to college, and here's MK Ultra. you know, this cruel experimentation. Um, so to me, I don't think that added to Ted's mental instability anymore. You know, I'm sure it did somewhat in the normal way it would add to anybody's mental instability. But I don't think that's what pushed him over the edge so much as one more nail in the coffin mm -hmm. of this is our culture. This is how our culture treats people. This is what our culture does and how it operates. So after all of that uh, experimentation, he still graduated from Harvard and he went on to another university. Do you remember which one it was? That I he, don't. I, well, it was somewhere in the Midwest um, that he got his PhD in mathematics and he became the youngest assistant professor of mathematics in the history of UC Berkeley um, in California. But he didn't stay there very long. He only he actually said in a paper that he hadn't planned on staying there very long. He just wanted to get some money so he could get out and go live off grid. That's what his plan was. Yeah, and there are mixed reviews about him. Some people call him a loner and, you know, stuck to himself. Other people were like, eh, maybe he's quieter than other people. But once you talk to him, he was really friendly. But uh, when we started reading about what his professors had to say about him, I mean, it was like one, one professor said, smart does not describe Ted Kaczynski. Um, he was brilliant on like a level that I've never seen before. Over and over, you see people just like blown away by this man's intellect, which, of course, we try to downplay now because of where his intellect led him, what his intellect led him to see about the culture we live in. So when the culture filters this description to us about Ted Kaczynski, that's much downplayed. The very thing that was getting so inflated as a young man when he was fitting the mold is very much downplayed. He can't be that intelligent. He must be crazy because mm. he's not walking in lockstep with our culture. 
And something else that I realized, and I mean, this is my opinion, but I feel like Ted Kaczynski was a Renaissance man. And the reason why I say that is, well, we'll talk a little bit more about his life in just a moment, but he came from a very logical, mathematical background as far as his education. But eventually, because of his interests, I mean, aside from bomb making, um, <laughs> chemistry, he self-taught, uh, he he learned about foraging, he designed and built his own cabin. I mean, and later in life, as he's reading, um, researching all of this information, he's reading it in the original texts, like from Russia or France. He learned Spanish. Um, I'm not exactly when, but I'm not exactly sure when, but he was corresponding with someone who was from Mexico and the guy was writing... Yeah, from prison. Um, he was writing to him in Spanish and then translating the man's uh, correspondences to him into English. I mean, he was a brilliant and is a brilliant man. Yeah, we, we came across one story told by Ted in an essay from uh, prison when he was a boy that he uh, was even interested in explosives back then. You know, he was in his chemistry class and learned how to mix up um Red phosphorus and I think potassium chlorate or something. But he was making little bangs, and this guy that was known for being a real annoying guy um, (laughs) came over and like, oh, how you doing? How how do you do that? And Ted said his one regret was that he answered the boy honestly because the boy um, started mixing a whole bunch of this stuff together, and Ted and other classmates were telling him not to, and boom, it blew up in his face. Didn't seriously hurt him, but scared everybody, and... um, Ted got kind of sucked into that. So even as a kid, he was getting a reputation for explosives. Yeah. And and not necessarily that that was funny, but he has written a number of uh, essays and articles from prison that are, I mean, they're they're pretty entertaining as far as, as, far as his writings go. Um, something else that I found oh, kind of hilarious was, so he went to Harvard and Harvard sent him an invitation to his class reunion. And also, I guess, you know, you could RSVP and let them know what your accomplishments were and and what your occupation was at that time. So he wrote that his occupation was prisoner and the awards that he had received were eight life sentences. Um, We'll get more into that about his uh, Unabomber sentence, but I just thought that was pretty funny. So After some time uh, teaching at Harvard, he decided to go ahead with his dream of moving out into the wilderness and just living immersed in nature. And he started building his cabin, I believe, in 1970. By 1971, he was uh, living out in uh, Lincoln, Montana, or on the outskirts. And pretty much by himself, he built the cabin. He said he had a little help from his brother, very little. Very little help. <laughs> and apparently at the time, his brother was kind of following in his footsteps. They were both trying to learn primitive skills and really uh, loved the woods and wanted to be more involved in it. And his brother really admired Ted then and was trying to you know, following his tracks of like a a little cabin with no electricity or running water out in the middle of Montana. And like I had mentioned before, um, uh, Kaczynski, you know, he just got books and he taught himself about foraging and tracking. Um, He would go out hunting. And I really especially liked the part in one of his um, responses, uh, correspondences, where he talked about how when he would go hunting for rabbit, he would say a little thank you to Grandfather Rabbit. And Kaczynski uh, was 
a self-proclaimed atheist, but I felt like being out in nature, he might have tapped into that animistic spirit in some way, like in his own way, his own experience. Yeah, it was interesting. It was an interview that we read where the guy apparently couldn't talk to Ted about his crime at the time because Ted was still hoping for a retrial. So he just asked a lot of questions about Ted's time in the woods. And this is another thing that we don't get to hear a lot about. How amazing it is that this man that was so mathematical, you know, that was excelling in the intellectual sphere of our culture, just turned away from it and then excelled out in Montana. He's living in a cabin with no electricity and no plumbing, which actually his neighbor said wasn't really as unusual as you might think it is out there. Um, He was hunting. He was starting his fires with a bow drill. He was learning how to read the land by tracking. And I like the way he answered that that thing about Grandfather Rabbit because he said when he killed a rabbit, when he hunted, he prayed to his invented demigod, Grandfather Rabbit. (laughs) And I found that interesting that he would call it an invented demigod, you know, sort of in a way of like saying, I'm not necessarily religious, but at the same time, he felt the necessity to do this in the first place. And from what I've read about animist cultures, often they believed in a all spirit for each species. So Mm -hmm. that's how they made sense of the fact that they would have to kill a deer. You would kill the deer and instead of praying to that specific deer, you would thank that deer. But you would also pray and try to appease the spirit of all deer, grandfather deer, for instance. So I don't know if Ted like read his way into that or intuited his way into that. But I just found that an animistic, uh, interesting part of his time out in the forest. And I also find it very interesting how Ted, as he's, these ideas are blooming in him about uh, being anti-technology and where technology is leading us and what it's doing to the world and to us, that his first response was not to hurt anyone. It was to back away from it. Mm-hmm. So he tried to go in the woods. And whereas a lot of us complain about technology and, you know, just give it lip service, Ted walked the walk. He went out in Montana and he lived out there. And as he says, he wasn't completely self-sufficient, but he was partly self-sufficient. And part of what he discovered out there led to his later acts that he's famous for, including that the landscape is not what it once was. Being completely sufficient, self-sufficient is not as easy as it used to be. And from that same interview, which um, I easily found online, I'll post these um like all of these interviews and essays and everything on our Facebook page. But this was an interview with Ted um, by the Blackfoot Valley Dispatch. I I guess it was like a local newspaper back in 1999. And I'd just like to read a little bit of uh, the response that Ted had when the interviewer asked, you know, what are some of your fondest memories or what are are the things that you remember um, that just were your favorite memories of living in the woods? Ted says, In my life in the woods, I found certain satisfactions that I had expected, such as personal freedom, independence, a certain element of adventure, a low-stress way of life. I also achieved certain satisfactions that I hadn't fully understood or anticipated, or that even came as complete surprises to me. The more intimate you become with nature, the more you appreciate its beauty. It's a beauty that consists not only in sights and sounds, but in an appreciation of the whole thing. What is significant is that when you live in the woods, rather than visiting them, the beauty becomes a part of your life, rather than something you just look at from the outside. And then a little bit later in the interview, he continues, 
Early in the springtime, when the winter's snow was melted off enough to make it possible, I would take long rambles over the hills, enjoying the new physical freedom made possible by the fact that I no longer had to wear snowshoes. And coming home with a load of fresh, young, wild vegetables, such as wild onions, dandelions, bitterroot, and lomatium, with a grouse or two, killed illegally, I'll admit. Working on my garden early in the morning, hunting snowshoe rabbits in the winter. Time spent at my hidden shack during the winter. Certain places where I camped out during spring, summer, or autumn. Autumn stews of deer meat with potatoes and other vegetables from my garden. Any number of occasions when I just sat or lay still doing nothing. Not even thinking much just soaking in the peace. And that's how the interview ended. And I was just like blown away because who reads that and and thinks that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber wrote that? And that, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just kind of contrasting that with the picture I had in my mind and the picture (laughs) we're given through the news and, you know, the mainstream media of this crazy guy, just like all he does is he's making bombs and like resenting the world that like he wasn't cool enough to fit in with. Um, just out there by himself. But when you get outside of that narrative, that mainstream narrative that just, you know, it's part of that background hum that keeps us all sleepy and obedient, you start finding this different picture of a powerful naturalist, a really strong-willed person who loved his solitude, who loved being out there. Um, And I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about this show we watched, but we'll come back to that. And, you know, it's not to say that there wasn't another side of him, but I feel like, especially after reading how much he just loved being out there, I think I might be in the same boat as him. So Gumby, you were telling me about how, um, you know, he, he found this plot of land um, out in the middle of kind of nothingness in Montana. And then what happens? Here comes the logging industry. Here come the housing developments. So what did you read about? There was a, a time when he was, before he was officially like doing the Unabomber stuff in 1975, he was kind of... Well, yeah, he uh, <laughs> talks about this dawning realization that it wasn't going to be as easy as he'd hoped. Um, this growing relationship with nature, he just, you know, gave up all this math and prestige and was like learning tracking and just the the solitude um and he talks about this one time where he walked to the sacred place to him he said it was two days journey from his cabin and uh he gets there and suddenly there is a road torn through it and how that was such a pivotal moment for him how many of us can identify with that and this is another thing about ted how many of us have seen that felt our hearts break and did nothing We just sat down and said, God, I hate this world. God, I hate people. God, I hate this culture. But these trees, these entities that we have this love for, we did nothing to defend them. Another road gets torn through. So Ted, being the remarkable man that I've I've come to realize that he is, (laughs) decided, you know, the same remarkable man that turned away from college and is now living in the woods in Montana, no less. If you've never seen a Montana winter, (laughs) my God, what a thing to jump into. (laughs) And now he begins to fight back. 
Before he starts building bombs, he starts sabotaging some of the equipment around him. There's housing developments coming up. There's um, just everywhere he looks, a new road. You know, it's the same old story. We've all seen this. Mm -hmm. Encroachment, progress, biggering and biggering and biggering. The old Wunzler is breathing down our necks. So Ted starts sabotaging some of this equipment, not content to just watch (laughs) this beautiful nature get ravaged right in front of him every day. He starts fighting back. And just like we were talking about before, Gumby was talking about the land that we have now and and back then, too, in the 70s, when Kaczynski was making his, you know, attempt to live off the land, it was hard. So he was still having to make some trips into town and buy a few things, like he said, like cooking oil, wheat flour, um, things like that. But he was trying the best he could. And as he's resisting this encroachment around him, he's also, through his own research and experience, realizing um, what I alluded to earlier, that this is not the landscape that it used to be, that a lot of these survival skills, they don't translate as well. The way the Native Mm -hmm. Americans lived on this, or the the Indians, as they prefer to be called, trying to change my vocabulary, Mm -hmm. lived on this continent. We can't do the things they did anymore because we have destroyed the land so much that a lot of these things are no longer possible. And I'm not saying it's impossible to live out there, as I've said before, but it is more difficult. And when you consider that It's more difficult to live out there now um, and that so many of the people that were raised to do this can't do it any longer. That to me is another thing that uh, uh, a lens through which I view Ted's acts through that gives me admiration for what he was trying to do, especially back then in the 70s, just living off grid. So even with his very little uh, expenditures, I guess he decided he was he was going to give it one more go, maybe make a little bit more money. And his brother, David, his younger brother that had looked up to him so much had kind of, I guess, just fallen off that path of how his brother was going in the woods. So David had become some sort of manager at a foam rubber factory. Yeah. Thank you, David Kaczynski, for giving the world more foam rubber. Yay. And I mean, I don't want to get too much into, uh, you know, figuring out what type of life Kaczynski was leading, but evidently there was some woman that worked there and, you know, Ted was like, oh, I was kind of interested in her and it didn't work out. And so I guess he wrote like some sort of dirty limerick or something and posted it at the job and his brother fired him. (laughs) Yeah, we were not able to find what the limerick was. If I could ask Ted one question right now, it might be, so what was the limerick? (laughs) Um, But apparently Ted wrote a limerick and this woman was a supervisor and, uh, you know, posted it up on the bulletin board where everybody could see, had a big um, argument with his brother who owned or was a manager Mm -hmm. at the very least of this foam rubber factory and was fired. Um, And that reminds me of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was younger, I used to do similar shit. Like I, I worked for a electric company um, and I started having a big problem with my boss. So I'd take my marker and um, I'd draw graffiti in the porta potty where everybody could see. I'll never forget one time I drew a picture of, of this guy. He was really easy to draw because he had a big black beard and big black frizzy hair and he was fat and his butt crack was always hanging out. <laughs> So I drew a picture of him, like his back turned and it was so obviously him and I wrote crack kills. And then a little bit later, I drew a picture of him with his pants down with another him behind him. Oh God, um, oh my God. Like humping him. And I said, hey, Jimmy, go fuck yourself. (laughs) So, you know, this is used to kind of, and maybe someday, you know, I'll be in court and somebody will be using these very stories to prove that I'm mentally ill. But I don't know. I see it through a different lens, like, um... 
And also one time I was working at a, a fancy golf course as a groundskeeper, and there was this poem written by the assistant manager of the groundskeepers that was called My Treyburn Experience. And it was just so like, when I go there, I feel warm and welcomed by the, the people, like we're family. And it's just this like ass kissing thing about how great the country club is and these rich old white people, how well they treat him. And this guy's black, by the way, the only black guy on the crew. So I don't know if he was trying to like ingratiate himself or something, but on my way out, I took that poem and I changed all the words and like rewrote the poem to just like, you know, when you work here, you know, it like just all the injustices and everything. And I got a guy to leave that on the bulletin board of the break room (laughs) as the day I quit. Um, and I was later told that that was put in my file. So if I ever try to get a job back there, you know, the new boss will open it up and see the file there. And like, nope, he's not getting hired. <laughs> you lived in infamy. Yeah. So there's that. I don't find that so, uh, such a big, um, mark against him as, you know, we've come across so many different interviews and stories and that comes up a lot. Him being fired from his brother's factory as in, oh, the guy's starting to lose it. But we will say this. That this was 1978. (laughs) So this was, I guess, one more, maybe the final nail in Ted's coffin of just how screwed up this world is that he can't deal with what's happening anymore. He's got to up the ante and fight back harder because that is when he mailed his first bomb. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So 1978. all the way through 1995. I can't remember if it's it's still like the longest uh, ongoing FBI case. I'm not sure, but that's a pretty long time to be doing what he was doing. And yeah, I forget. I don't remember if it was the longest or had the most people on it. But yeah, it's it's <laughs> won some records for extremism as far as the FBI trying to find Ted Kaczynski. Um. One of the things that was really awesome that Ted did right away was he put intentionally misleading clues in the bombs. Um, He would put like a note one in one bomb that was like, oh, ha, I thought, you know, I told you it would work and like wrote it to some nonsense person just to put the FBI on the wrong trail. (laughs) He would use stamps that were intentionally misleading. So the FBI was looking in all the wrong places. Um, Just things like that, that he would do that would just completely mastermind the FBI, outsmart them at every turn. And for years and years, the FBI had nothing on this guy. They were nowhere near Ted Kaczynski. So that was why one of the reasons he was number one on their their manhunt list. And and keep in mind, too, this is a guy that by, by 1978, he had been living in that cabin in Montana with, with very little money. Um, at sometimes he had a vehicle, but I think by 1975-ish, he uh, he had built his own bike, and he was just biking into town. Occasionally, people would pick him up because they feel bad for him, like biking or walking into town in the rain or snow or something like that. But he was really uh, utilizing the library resources and just doing as much as he could on his own, like the building of everything of those bombs was like with wood and making his own everything. I even, well, go ahead. You feel, you look like you have something to say. 
Uh, I thought, well, I was just going to chime in there that uh, I didn't need to jump in with this, but I was thinking about how the people around him describe him as being quiet, but that, again, was not an unusual trait in Montana out there. A lot of people just kind of stuck to themselves, but a lot of people said if you talk to him, he's friendly enough. You know, he'd had a couple neighbors, uh, one couple that he uh, shared some of his vegetables when he had too many with. You know, he wasn't just a crazy recluse. He he developed a friendship with the librarian. Um, so, yeah, it was just kind of, you know, he was described as just sort of a almost a normal guy out there for, for Montana, you know, as far as this group of people that kind of live off grid out there. Yeah. We even read, there was another article by a, a local newspaper that had people that had, yeah, met him or just known about him. Like, well, yeah, a lot of people, they come out to Montana to live in a cabin in the woods and just be by themselves. So they just thought he was just another guy like that. And as far as going to the library, I mean, the librarian that he befriended, she thought he was just like a brain, like super brilliant, which he was. Um, so, so yeah, like Gumby said, like 1978, that was the beginning of his bombing campaign. And the Unabomber uh, name for the case was because his targets were often from universities, so the UN, and then the A, a bomber, is for the airline, uh, well, I guess the bomb that he sent through the mail. What did it, did it catch on fire in the plane? I think that's what it happened. Yeah, there was a problem with uh, the detonator of some kind and it didn't go off. So it just smoked. And so mm. um, part of the people that he's credited with uh, injuring were the people on this plane. The plane landed and the people had smoke inhalation. Um, and so, and I'm not sure if he mailed that or dropped that off. I'm not sure how that got on the plane, but well, it, it was 78, the first one. Yeah, it used to be that airplanes would take the U.S. mail, um, I guess, as part of, you know, like a, a deal, like a contract. But then <laughs> maybe even because of Kaczynski, I'm not sure. But I think they just started having their own planes or using like UPS and all that. So, Gumby, you have the list of... Victims. Yeah, so we wrote down the list of victims, um, and he ended up, when by the time they caught him, he had murdered three people and injured many more. Um, a lot of the interviews, a lot of the news stories we watched that the mainstream media covered on this guy called these innocent victims, as if he just was, you know, uh, crazy with bloodlust and wanted to just blow people's faces off. <laughs> when you look at the list and the occupations... Um, I'd say the closest I'd say to an innocent victim would be the plane. And I only say innocent victim there because that could be any of us, including me and Teresa. We've, we've been on planes. But from Ted's point of view, where do you start to fight? You know, what do you start to fight? Right. Um, here's people, once again, flying on this plane that's just using mass loads of fuel. That's just a, a huge part of this um, industrial society. So... To his mind, it seemed like as good a target as any. And when you think about what our U.S. military does every day, what it attacks, it's not really that far off, um, I would say, any of the, the fighting and violence that we're around. But that's the one that's the hardest to me when I look at the list of victims to justify, because who knows who these 12 people are. But when you look at the rest of the people, they're not random. You've got two computer salesmen. Now, when you start reading... Ted's philosophies and start looking around yourself, you know, these are owners of computer stores. So one thing, you've got the capitalists. They're owners of businesses. Another thing, what are they selling? This computer, this technology that further and further is removing us. So to Ted's mind, 
you know, we say celebrate our troops. They're going over and sh- there and shooting usually other soldiers, civilians, but usually poor people because those are the people that tend to sign up for these battles. So consider that. If that is a justified victim just because they're in another country, is Ted's victim really so blatantly in contrast, unjustified, mm-hmm. a capitalist who's selling this technology that alienates us, that removes us. And there's a graduate student. Um, let me see who actually got killed here. Okay, when I look at the actual three murders, one of them was the president of the California Forestry Association. He was a lobbyist. He was the guy that's getting forests cut down in California. <laughs> He was the guy that, like, the activists are protesting against, but the guy just kind of chuckles to himself and ignores them. Ted stopped this motherfucker cold. (laughs) Yeah, he did. He saved a lot of forest and a lot of creatures that are under stress. If there was ever a justified person to be murdered, and I know that that is a controversial topic, how to use violence, which we'll talk more about, or if there is any time to justify it, that's the guy. Um, Who else have we got? We've got... Thomas J. Mosser, and that last guy's name was Gilbert Brent Murray. We've got Thomas J. Mosser, oh, he worked for Burson Marsteller. He was an executive, and he helped Exxon clean up their image after the spills Mm. so we could keep buying gas. He was a greasy slime ball. Um, He was one of the three people that was murdered by Ted's bombs. Not just some poor Joe, you know, just trying to, like, get by. This was a guy cleaning up Exxon Valdez's image. You know, all these protests against the gas company that do nothing. Again, (laughs) Ted decided he was at war. Um, And the other person was Hugh Scranton that was killed, a computer store owner. When we look at the people injured, um, we've got a computer science professor. We've got a university police officer who was not the intended target. Um, We have a graduate student who also happened to be a captain of the U.S. Air Force. So this is a guy that, you know, if he gets the orders, he goes and drops bombs on whoever the politician tells him to drop bombs on. He's a guy that understands the rules of war and signed up willingly. So when I look at this list, I'm not seeing, like, a school shooter. I'm seeing a guy who was at war, and as far as targets go to pick, they're not bad targets. Mm. I see on there a psychology professor who was injured. Oh, and a geneticist. (laughs) Yep. I mean, a guy that's like playing God and fucking with our genes, you know? And he also uh, called up or sent a letter to his brother, who was also in some gene research, and said, you're next. But that guy never received a bomb. So it wasn't just random bloodshed. uh, Kaczynski had really given this some thought and thought, if I'm going to try to fight industrial society, this stuff that is, is species are going extinct. 200 species are going extinct every day. The forests are falling right in front of his house. Who do I target? Who does it make sense to target? Does it make sense to sign up for the military and go shoot at brown people on land I've never been on and they've never been on my land? No. So these targets were not random. Exactly. I would say that uh, one of the critiques I've run across that I I agree with is that a bomb is a sloppy way to do it. But when you consider, well, if you're going to fight, how will you do it? I don't have an easy answer for that. So I say that with a grain of salt because you don't know who's going to open a bomb package, which actually happened a few times with Ted, that his intended targets were not the ones who opened the package. So it is a bit of a, uh, a messy way to fight. But no more messy than the bombs we drop every day on other countries. Exactly. And what do we call people who die by the hundreds and thousands and sometimes millions? 
casualties. Mm, collateral, collateral damage. damage. And yet, they're the heroes we celebrate every Veterans Day, and Ted Kaczynski is a terrorist. Mm. Now, throughout his bomb-making uh, campaign in those years, he used uh, FC to on his bombs, and it was it was put on his bombs on the part as a signature as a signature on the part of the bomb that would like that would survive the blast. Yeah, usually the end of the pipe bomb inside. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered because when we were reading the so-called manifesto, industrial society and its future, the 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 acronym FC would come up, and I'm like, what is FC? I'm missing something. Yeah, so. if you don't know the backstory of that uh, manifesto, and uh, we'll talk about, I don't really like calling it the manifesto. We'll talk <laughs> about that in a minute. But it's kind of confusing at first because he talks about himself in the plural. He says we, right. and you see FC a lot. So the first time we started reading it, we hadn't done any research on TED, and it was a bit confusing for that reason. And, yeah, I mean, it kind of lends itself to the media's coverage of him being kind of paranoid, schizophrenic, crazy. Like maybe he's got different personalities in there. Yeah. But when you realize that FC stands for Freedom Club. And that was part of his misleading tactics for the FBI. He could get his ideas out there, which more than anything, he was trying to encourage other people. It's time to stand up and fight for our world. It's dying. So... He sort of held the country hostage with this manifesto um, and demanded it get published. And it did in the New York Times, right? Um, the Washington Post. Washington Post. And um, one of his tactics was to indicate that he was part of a larger group. And maybe he was. I mean. Yeah, we were wondering that, too. Because everything indicates that it was a tactic. But for all we know, he might have gotten arrested and just not sold out the people that were with him. But either way, it's either a tactic to screw with the FBI, which makes a lot of sense, um, or not. And I would say this. Um, when I was doing additional research, I found that there are actually groups that are calling themselves like, you know, Ted's Fan Club or FC Club. And there was even one in existence at some point in the past. I'm not sure if they're still in existence. Um but at UNC Chapel Hill, which is a very uh, liberal school, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, so maybe he saw into the future that, you know, after people read his essay, his thesis, his works, that there would be a freedom club. So screw all the people that thought he was crazy. <laughs> um, so eventually, through the FBI work, um, they they ended up. Uh, acquiescing to his request to have the manifesto published in the Washington Post. And lo and behold, his his brother, no, brother mine... Wait, wait, before you move on to that, I thought it was interesting how he mailed his manifesto. And let's quit calling it a manifesto. What's okay. the title of it? Industrial Society and Its Future. Industrial Society and Its Future. He wrote it like a thesis. I mean, he, he was a doctor of mathematics. So, and, and Ted even refers to it as a manifesto sometimes in his essays now, I guess just for ease of people knowing what he's talking about. But I find the word to be some of the propaganda, which we're going to talk more about in a minute, of how to dismiss it. Doesn't manifesto sound like the work of a crazy person? Yeah. When you read this document, this uh, essay, it is brilliant. Um, and all right, I won't get too much into that because I know we're going to talk more about that. But, um, did you want to talk about 
Well, I think I interrupted you. Go ahead and finish. Well, that's okay. So, um, so they released his essay, his thesis, Industrial Society and Its Future, in the Washington Post. And David, his brother, um, turned him in. He, he said, I think this might be my brother based on some things that he had written in the past that are very similar. So they call, some people refer to David, his brother, as the unisqueeler because um, he sold out his brother. Yeah, and like we've watched interviews with this guy. He's such a tool. <laughs> um. So Ted was arrested in 1996. And Gumby, you had mentioned the... Oh, yeah, to like get into the propaganda. Um, one of the things is we're sifting through this all this information. Um, you realize how much of a shell of propaganda has gone around this guy. If you ever want to see who's truly dangerous to the, the system, the industrial society, pay attention to how much effort they put in the propaganda against them. The one picture, when I say Ted Kaczynski, probably one or both images pop up in your mind. One is the sketch, and there's some debate of whether that sketch was actually of Ted, um, of the hooded figure with the glasses. Um, some people say that it might have actually been the sketch artist or someone else that was in the person's mind because it doesn't look much like Ted at all. The other is a photograph taken right when he's arrested. He's got a dirty face, his hair's disheveled, uh, you know, it's like, or maybe it's that mug shot, you know, where he looks like a, a crazy caveman. Yeah. One of the things I found remarkable is as we're looking through all these photos of Ted, almost all the rest of them, he looks like a well-groomed professor. Um, you know, he looks like a decent looking guy that's got his stuff together. He just looks like a quiet, thoughtful person. The one picture we're fed, if you look up Wikipedia, it's the one photograph on the Wikipedia website describing Ted Szynski is the craziest picture you right. can find of him. Um, I mean, I look crazy too. Like if somebody like just woke me up and arrested me, I'd probably look that crazy. The interviews we saw from the mainstream <laughs> media were nauseating, like the stuff that they focused on. Um, one, one reporter, one news person that's describing it, refers to Ted's ramblings. You know, supposedly the neutral. If you read this thing, it is not ramblings. And actually, we uh, read up on some of the reception when his um, essay, I'm going to call it a manifesto because everybody mm. else is, <laughs> but his essay was out there. And people that were, you know, the, the top intellects in our culture that study you know, the effect of technology in our culture. One guy even said, if this is the work of a crazy person, then there's a lot of thesis out there that should be dismissed as crazy right. because this is brilliant. Almost everyone who read it, who was a scholar, said most, if not all of this, is absolutely true. And um, as someone myself who reads through a lot of uh, Luddite history and anarcho-primitivist stuff, um, God, what I read from Ted Kaczynski stands right up there with the top tier of anything I've ever read. It is not the rambling. So for this reporter to dismiss it, to use that word ramblings, the guy obviously didn't get it if he even bothered to read the right. damn thing. Um, and I heard another reporter like talk about, oh, when we went in there, you know, it smelled like smoke. Of course it smelled like smoke. He's heating the damn place with a wood stove. <laughs> and then he talks about body odor and that Ted had like some little door that if he had to use the bathroom sometimes, you know, that he might use. I don't even know if that's true, but if it is... If you've ever been out in a Montana winter, there were probably <laughs> days that he was snowed in. So if he was smart enough to have a place to take a shit that wasn't a bucket sitting in the corner, Hell yeah. that wasn't something to belittle him like a madman out in the woods, like just, you know, luxurating in the smell of his own crap. 
This was how much he was dedicated to finding a way out of a culture that's killing our children. Um, Yeah, the propaganda just really pissed me off. And we watched the show called Manhunt, Unabomber. And it was a fictional show. And at first, it's really intriguing. Um, Actually, it was kind of intriguing. I enjoyed it all the way through. Um, The facts are really close to what actually happened from our our other research. Like, they're really stick close to the, the details of this case. But some of the propaganda in the show was the show opens with this FBI agent who is now living like Ted Kaczynski. He's out in the woods. He's dropped off grid. Um, and he's read the manifesto and he has actually found the truth in a lot of it. So he's changed his whole lifestyle after being the FBI agent who who uh, captured Ted Kaczynski. So they need to bring this guy in because Ted won't talk to anybody else because they want this guy to convince Ted to give a guilty plea. Um, And the rest of the show is told through flashbacks five years earlier of the process of how this guy, Fitzgerald, who was actually involved in the case but played a much smaller part in reality, um, got brought in. He was a linguistics guy and how he slowly found Ted. But through the show, the propaganda is that this guy turns out to be a dickhead. (laughs) He, like, he betrays one of his co-workers, he gets alienated from his wife and his kids, fails to pick his kids up, doesn't even own that he did anything wrong. Um, So it's showing this guy that's having a mental break. You're not sympathetic with this guy. You're feeling like, oh, what is he doing? What a creep. Like, you know, he's obviously mentally unstable. And then when we see Ted towards the end of the show, Oh, Ted is like starting to feel regretful. He's writing this letter to his brother, regretting this path. How did he get here in this nightmare life? And they show him fantasizing about, oh, if he'd gone on a different path, he'd have a wife and a kid and he'd be playing in the sun. And then it shows Ted out there, you know, kind of dancing by himself in this way, like with his underwear kind of hanging off his his emaciated emaciated frame, you know, like a madman on this gray day. Um the propaganda just really starts like at the end, even though they want to kind of like bring you along like, Ooh, tantalizing. Maybe Ted's got something to say, but in the end, the final word has to be Ted is freaking crazy. And the FBI agent who got influenced by Ted also was crazy. And both men are regretful. Ted's in prison now for the rest of his life. And by the way, we have not seen any regret in Ted. He's never regretted his actions. He did what he felt like he had to do all the way through. And his time out in the woods was not, oh, my God, how did I wind up in this nightmare existence in the shack? It was more like Thoreau, how beautiful nature is. I can't believe how wonderful this is. Um, And the final scene I thought was pretty cool, you know, but it didn't make up for all the rest of the propaganda. This FBI agent who has kind of wrecked his life and now lives like Ted was saved luckily because there's this professor this linguistics professor who's interested in him and so there's you know the the chance of a love affair and he's getting brought brought back into the fold of the system mm-hmm. back to society and all of its uh, wonderful accoutrements but the last line was pretty pretty intriguing where the the woman turns to him after you know he's finally put the ted case behind him and says what do you want to do and the guy the fbi agent fitzgerald says we can do anything we want and they come to a red light and he's sitting there, and there's no cars coming. They're just sitting there for no reason because the red light told them to, and he's staring at the red light. And it's an allusion to what he said earlier to Ted that it finally clicked to him one night how much we're owned by our technology when he came to a traffic light and was sitting there for no reason and continued to sit there. Even though no cars were coming, there was no reason because a red light told him to. 
So that was kind of a uh, an intriguing way to end the series. But for the most part, by the time I got to the end, I was disgusted. It was just another way of calling Ted crazy and dismissing him. And an eco-villain. Yeah. You want to talk any uh, any more well, about that? Well, eco-terrorists. Or eco-terrorists. Eco-villains are supposed to be the guys that actually Ted was uh, targeting. Oh, that's right. He's a <laughs> counter-terrorist. He's a counter-terrorist. Um, so what were you alluding to? Well, I was just saying, do you want to talk about that? The eco-terrorist or counter-terrorist? Um, well, there's that quote by John Zerzan that actually says that better, where he mentions an eco-terrorist. Do you... All right. Let me see if I can find that. So Teresa's going to try to track that down for me. Um, 1998. But when they caught Ted, he it was 1998, which was a big year for me. That was the year that I finally had the guts to take off and be a hobo. I uh, All this was like in the background. I wasn't really paying attention. Back then, I just thought Ted was some crazy guy that just lost his shit and started sending bombs to people. Um, he was sentenced to eight life terms in prison in solitary confinement, which actually Ted probably liked. Um, but he, he describes talking to other people who made bombs, among them Timothy McVeigh and other people. So I guess this isn't a strict solitary confinement with no possibility of parole. And as Teresa mentioned, I like that Harvard story where they're inviting him to the reunion and, and he mentions those eight life sentences as his awards. <laughs> <clears throat> but he was convicted in the end of 10 counts of transportation, mailing and use of bombs and three murders. Um, did you find that? I'm not sure here, which one you were talking down. about, but here's one, and then the other one is... Uh... So if you want to talk about his lawyers. Sure. So <laughs> so Ted wanted to represent himself, but he had these lawyer, or this lawyer in the show, there was one female lawyer in particular, but he had these lawyers that were, number one, they were cutting him off from anyone else. And number two, they were um, in cahoots with his family. And I guess the FBI like made a deal with his brother, with David, that turned him in, that they wouldn't seek the death penalty. So they wanted Ted Kaczynski to plead guilty and just go to, go to prison. Um, so the lawyers cooked up this idea that they could make Ted look like he was mentally ill and mentally unfit to represent himself in court. And that is not at all what Ted wanted. Yeah, Ted's whole thing was this manifesto, and it is brilliant. He put all of his ideas in there, and one of the things he says in the manifesto is the only way I could get people to read it was to murder somebody because mm-hmm. otherwise it would just be another thing that sits on a shelf and the people that already think like this might read it. I wanted everybody to be exposed to these ideas because I'm trying to change the world. And so his whole thing was to have this out there, and he was prepared to die for it. He assumed when the FBI caught him, he would probably be killed um, in one way or the other. He was hoping that that would happen. He was, he didn't want to rot in a freaking solitary confinement cell for the rest of his life. And one of the things Ted really rails against is what he calls leftists. And so it's kind of tragically ironic that his lawyers were a team of leftists, and indeed they screwed him over. They just wanted they, to help. They kept him isolated. He couldn't talk to people on the outside. He didn't, he didn't even know what was happening. His friends couldn't talk to him. Um, any letters that came through, John Zerzan describes this because John Zerzan started taking notice when Ted got captured and uh, tried to help him out as much as he could and visit him and, and um, raised, what am I trying to say, fundraisers mm-hmm. to help Ted. Um, 
But he sa- describes how no letter could get through to Ted that had any information the lawyers didn't want him to know. They would block it out or just block the letter altogether while they're trying to get an insane plea. The insanity plea discredits his manifesto. It go- t- puts Ted exactly where our culture wants him to be. A freaking nut with a bunch of rambling, mad ramblings, not a person with, you know, observations that are actually meaningful to share. So this was a final blow to Ted. And when he finally figured out what was happening, um, oh, I've stolen your story from you. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Finish. I'm I'm glad that well, when they finally found out what was happening, he tried to get a lawyer that would better represent him, um, a lawyer that was known for um, representing cases that were you know, anarchists, people that would kind of fight our culture oh, yeah. that was better at representing that. I can't remember the guy's name, um, but it was too late. The, the judge wouldn't let him do it. He said, no, these are your lawyers. And then Ted, Ted tried to represent himself and um, they wouldn't do that either. So Ted ended up getting these eight life sentences, which is the last thing he wanted. And um, his sanity was brought into question, which was what he was absolutely trying to avoid. His, mm-hmm. He just wanted his words out there. Um, and you might say again, like, oh, are we supposed to shed a tear for the guy that was blowing up people? Well, you want me to shed a tear every Veterans Day for these veterans that were blowing <laughs> up people. So, yeah, maybe you can spare one. Um, what was that quote? Well, the quote in reference to, you know, who are the terrorists? I like this quote from John Zerzan's book, um, Running on Emptiness. He talks quite a bit about Ted Kaczynski in that one. He might talk, talk about Ted in other books, but I haven't read all of John's books. He writes, Enter the Unabomber. And a new line is being drawn. This time, the bohemian skitzfluxers, green yuppies, hobbyist anarcho-journalists, condescending organizers of the poor, hip nihiloasthetes, I don't know how to say that, (laughs) and all the other anarchists who thought their pretentious pastimes would go on unchallenged indefinitely. Well, it's time to pick which side you're on. It may be that here also is a Rubicon from which there will be no turning back. Some, no doubt, would prefer to wait for the perfect victim. Many would like to unlearn what they know of the invasive and unchallenged violence generated everywhere by the prevailing order Mm. in order to condemn the Unabomber's counter-terror. But here is the person and the challenge before us. Anarchist, one more effort if you would be enemies of this long nightmare. So I really appreciated that quote because, you know, if you just let the narrative lead your mind and turn your your thoughts off, we think of Ted as the terrorist because he didn't just go along with um, the status quo. I like how John points out that the real violence is conducted by the society we're either actively contributing to and participating in or we're benefiting from. Um, so I would say that, you know, consider that anyone who fights that, is that not counterterrorism? And it's interesting that we we left it at that because now we're going to talk a little bit more about the violence that was even at the same time that Ted Kaczynski was sending his bombs. What did you write down? 37 people were killed trying to use a vending machine? Yeah, so (laughs) I was looking for a contrast because I hate it when people, you know, really inflate how much the violence in Ted Kaczynski and totally ignore the violence of our culture that we've just gotten so used to, we don't even consider it worthy of a thought. And I found out that the number was 37? Yeah. 37 people in the exact years that Ted was bombing died trying to use vending machines, which I found ironic because Ted's fighting technology. technology. <laughs> and what about the um, the bombs? So, you know, okay, maybe you're saying, oh, well, he used bombs. That's that's terrible. 
Well, how many bombs were dropped in Vietnam from 1967 to 73? Any guesses? 260 million cluster bombs were dropped. And these are cluster bombs. And as the article that uh, had this number said, that's probably not all the cluster bombs, because if they pick a target and they drop multiple bombs on it, they count that as one bomb. And a cluster bomb itself is multiple bombs. (laughs) And from other research that we've done on other topics, we know that the Vietnam War was so much worse than that. They did, they intentionally destroyed the environment You know, they tried to destroy the land base, not just people and all people. Um, So don't give me any crap about like how proud you are of this country and the the soldiers and the veterans and somebody like Ted, because he used violence, is to be just condemned and not listened to. Um, I'd say regarding violence, my thoughts on that are if Ted's story did not involve bombs, a lot of us would consider him a romantic hero. Wow. He dropped out of. Um, our culture, you know, a a promising future and went to live in the woods. That is beautiful. That's like Thoreau. The (laughs) thing that puts people against Ted is the violence. Oh, no, I'm not listening to that guy. He's crazy. He sent bombs to people. He hurt people. I'm for (laughs) nonviolence. Yeah. And many of you see yourselves as peaceful or nonviolent, even pacifist. Well, I say that you can't be nonviolent while you are immersed in, participating in, and benefiting from the bloody spoils of the most violent culture ever known, and we all know it. You have simply removed yourself from the dirty work, the gore, but ultimately approve of it by the lifestyle you refuse to relinquish. You think you can effectively oppose the very system you remain reliant on? Might this not be a crippling conflict of interest? Um, You know, you consider, like... Gandhi and Peace Pilgrim, they seem to know this. Buddha, the Amish, Jesus, they all displayed an understanding of this. You can't claim peace while you go on using the toys one for you, one for you through violence. You have not relinquished violence against the poor, the powerless, or the masses raped for your livelihood, but only against the powerful you fear will take your crutches away. Um... You know, you don't, you're only relinquishing violence against the rich who might punish you instead of the impoverished. Namely, you're scared to bite the hand that feeds you because you remain addicted to their cannibalistic treats. So I'd invite you to acknowledge your violence. Own the blood on your hands that it might disgust you enough to change. Turn that violence against those who must be stopped. Right now, you're in that group, but you don't have to be. Um, you know, so... Those are some of my thoughts on violence. You know, we all like to pretend like, oh, violence disgusts us, but we're all like feeding on it. Our culture is built on it. You live the way you do because there's people out there being way more violent than Ted. Um, so it just doesn't work for me when people try to condemn his, him as a terrorist and ignore all the rest. What's your ex- what is your experience with violence? Like, have you ever dabbled in any sort of uh, like... <laughs> oh, this is incredible. Why, Teresa? I'm glad you asked. Yeah. Um, I got the Anarchist Cookbook when I was younger, and uh, I was thinking the only thing to do with our culture, I was really angry, was to fight it, and I wanted to learn how to make bombs, how to, you know, actively fight it. Um, my friends and I would get together, and one of my friends, um, I'm going to do him a big service here and not name names, <laughs> but he kind of headed it up, you know, like we were all involved a little bit, but he was the one that really studied how to do it. We would get that black powder. Um, they put in black powder rifles and get like pipes from the plumbers on the construction sites we worked with, drill a little hole in the end, get some fuse from Hungates, like hobby stores. That was a uh, 
actually waterproof fuse. We even blew up a bomb underwater one time to see if it would work. <laughs> oh, my God. But we'd start experimenting, like blowing up things in his yard. He had a junk car. We blew up that car. Um, there was a huge tractor, like one of those huge wheel hubs. We put a bomb under that and blew it right over the telephone line. <laughs> We started scaring ourselves. The bombs started being so loud that we'd take off running and thought like, wow, that might have just knocked the neighbor's like windows out. And the neighbor was like a few hills over, but it was that loud and disruptive. Um, so that's kind of my experience with, uh, with bombs. And what else do we have written here? Oh, and yeah, that was kind of the beginning of me studying what anarchism meant. You know, I'd draw the little anarchy sign all over everything when I was in high school and just realizing, like, I knew I hated the government. I knew that from very young. I didn't know there was anything you would call somebody like that. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, given another walk of life and a different brain, I might have I might have been like Ted. So um, I feel like I've got, what am I trying to say, I, an understanding of, like, how somebody could get there. Because, you know, if you you start seeing our culture at war with the planet, and how can you not? I mean, we are actively at war with the planet. Daniel Quinn, a writer a lot of people admire, he talks about that. It's an active war with the planet. How do you not join the other side? How do you just stand by and pretend like you're neutral, especially when you're benefiting from the culture at war with the planet? It, it just it doesn't stand to reason. I like that Vonnegut quote that you wrote down. Can I say it? Yeah. A sane person to an insane society must appear insane. True that. Did you want to say anything else about what needs to happen before we fight? Well, basically to ask the question, you know, while we're busy condemning people like Ted Kaczynski, while we're busy uh, condemning all the people we we regard as terrorists who are always part of a underdog group, a group that is facing incredible odds, namely our country, our culture, and trying to fight for different reasons. You know, I really love Ted's reasons. Uh, the 9-11 attack, those reasons, I don't love them as much, but I can't disregard that they stood up to a huge force. They stood up and fought. What's it going to take us to stand up and fight? Um, how bad does it need to get? 200 species a day are going extinct. Two football fields worth of forests are falling every second. We know that our children and grandchildren have no future directly tied to the way we're living. And we still, like, if you bring up the Unabomber to most people, they say, oh, the guy's crazy. How are we not fucking crazy? <laughs> what does it take for you to stand up and fucking fight for everything that, that feeds you, that nourishes you, that you love for your own kids? Um, yeah, I just, I don't, I, nobody has an answer for that question. I ask people that and they, they say, oh, you're being negative. I'm going to go back to Facebook and look, look at pictures of Grumpy Cat. <laughs> rest, rest in peace, grumpy cat. Oh, and you know, if you if you have happened to uh, download it, because you can find it online for free, the entire thesis, his entire article, Industrial Society and Its Future, Ted's first sentence says a lot. I mean, if you don't get much past the first sentence, I think you've you've done yourself a service to starting to see where he's coming from. And that first sentence is, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Yeah, many other professors, you know, allude to that first sentence in our research, and they're like, well, that pretty much sums it up. Who can argue? 
And Gumby, did you want to talk a little bit about like your views on technology or just like some of the experiences that you've had? Well, I mean, first of all, it's the question is, what is technology? Um, I've spent most of my life feeling opposed to what I call technology, ranging from a flat refusal to use it to learning ways of not needing it or uh, to begrudgingly compromising with and getting sucked into it. But, you know, if you ask yourself, what is it and why do I feel such a gut resistance to it? I looked the word up and according to Webster's, um, I was even more nonplussed with the results than I expected to be. So as is very often the case, if I want depth beyond superficialities, I'm forced to explore my own definitions. First, let me make some observations I've noticed about technology. I've observed that technology nearly always promises to address a problem, usually caused by the last technology created for the same purpose. <laughs> exactly. But creates more problems that seem to require more technologies, which create more and so on. You get the idea. Even the medicines produced from technology. You know, when I ask people, like, what good has technology done for us? One of the answers I've gotten is modern medicine. Um, but these keep more of us alive on an already overpopulated, imbalanced planet with diminishing resources. And how are we going to address that? Technology. <laughs> so I find this very important, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but technology apparently breeds more technology in a spreading, growing way that never reaches a restful state. It seems to intrinsically need to advance as fast as possible. Another connected observation is that for every technology we invent to do a job for us, we almost immediately lose the ability to do that job. An example of this I've seen in my lifetime is spell check. Um, you know, when I'm working with kids, I see them write things out, and the spell check, it corrects our spelling for us. And I've seen how horrible young people are at spelling now. It's gotten worse. It's become an impractical skill, and I can't blame them. You know, you don't need it anymore. So because a computer does it for us, we disregard it. We're practical people when it comes down to it. This is what we're wired for. You look like you had something to say. Oh, I was just going to say, you, um, <laughs> you have this habit. You say, like, I don't let the device tell me what words like you know how you can just choose the word to finish your sentence and <laughs> yeah. it'll type it in i often like i unfortunately i'm starting to use it a bit more but yeah i usually like whatever it's trying to get me to say even if it's correcting me i will write it out myself like fuck that spell check <laughs> so technology tends to have a weakening effect on us we justify this by thinking the new gadget saves us time formerly wasted in menial chores makes life easier but that lie's long been exposed. We all know we work more now. And what do we do with free time when we have it? Um, you know, I see even the people I see jogging have technology piped into their ears to drown out that pesky bird song. Yet even with the lie exposed, we still immerse ourselves in it, which leads me to the last observation I have about technology. It's addictive. Once you pick it up, it's hard to put down. Our species thrived without cell phones until very recently, but now it seems irresponsible not to own one. What if a loved one needs help? What if they get hit by a car while the driver is distractedly texting on their cell phone? Hmm. So what is it? Technology is a manifestation of what? Humans lived on the planet for millennia with what we call primitive technology. If you think it's primitive, you go start a friction fire on a humid day. Go feed yourself with hunting weapons and traps that you created. This ancient technology didn't have the characteristics of our modern technology. It evolved, but glacially slow. It didn't carry an urgency to advance. It strengthened us, not weakened us, adding to our abilities instead of depleting or replacing them. And it didn't seem to carry this craving, addictive quality. People still gave up their things routinely to travel, to train, to trade, to celebrate, to undertake vision quests. Um, 
there's a difference in what we want from our technology and what they wanted from theirs. So what is this difference? What seed impulse pushes our technology desperately forward in such destructive directions, an impulse mostly unknown to all other cultures for the vast bulk of human history? I think our technology is a manifestation of discontent, an embodiment of it. This is what we don't see in tribal cultures. They were content to eat the food provided, content to share it with other creatures, content with the entertainment of each other, content to celebrate life and grieve death and have faith and content with the time it took to do chores that were just as sacred as everything else. Discontent defines us. It has since the agricultural revolution began fueling our culture 10,000 years ago when we, the new gods, banished ourselves from the Garden of Eden to live by the sweat of our brows. Our technology cannot reach a static state because we cannot be content. Only ever-reaching, needy, discontented technology could look the way ours looks. It can never make us happy because we poured our energy into the glorification of discontent. Of course, we market it under more attractive words like ambition, innovation, progress, advancement, but what need would a contented people have for these qualities? Arguably, we now have more advanced technology, better communication, better medicine, and more available info than ever before in human history, but are further away from calling our lives good enough than ever before. You find me one person who wants to stop right here, the best it's ever been in our technological advancement. Isn't that peculiar? Discontent with the only beautiful, life-sustaining planet we've ever known, now we and our technology reach for Mars. You think we'll be happy there? <laughs> so I guess that's the rub for me, my resistance to technology. I want to be content. I see the laugh lines of brown people who hold their families tight, are happy in teepees and wigwams, and can truly enjoy their sometimes short lives open to sunshine, rain, and moon shadows. And the, the length of their lives is actually debated now from what I hear. Um, largely, I'm hearing that from Derek Jensen. And you contrast that with modern man plugged in, tuned out, alienated, in a choked crowd complaining of the dying planet he's contributing to during his long, pointless life. We're taught to imagine a better future with better technology. I picture a contented people not needing it. So that's where I come from with technology, my resistance to it. And I found a lot of uh, echoes of that in Ted's work, among many others like John Zerzan and Derek Jensen and Daniel Quinn and the... The list goes on and on. And I think Ted Kaczynski would agree with you, or it seems like, uh, I don't know, like, this is the first that we've gone through, a, like, a lot of his writings. I was trying to read, or we were trying to read, the uh, the essay, Industrial Society and Its Future, together. But, I mean, getting into the rest of his writings, it's it's astounding how much overlap, how how similar he is to a lot of the authors that Gumby has mentioned in the podcast before and a lot of the theories and ideas that Gumby is, I mean, he's written all this stuff out. He came to the same conclusion. There was a, uh, there was a quote from Ted that was about optional technology. Should I read that? Sure. Because you had mentioned that, you know, like technology begets technology begets technology and it becomes something that you it isn't optional. So this is Ted. When a new item of technology is introduced as an option that an individual can accept or not as he chooses, it doesn't necessarily remain optional. In many cases, the new technology changes society in such a way that people eventually find themselves forced to use it. Well, what work was that from? Uh, I... 
have a page number 127. I don't have the name of the work. Oh, that was paragraph 127 oh, for paragraph. the manifesto. My so <laughs> it was interesting. We were kind of in a hurry to research um, everything we could on Ted for this podcast. And so we read his manifesto really quick and we loved it. But at the same time, it was sort of like it was a lot to take in. Right. But then we st- when we started looking for quotes for one paragraph to stand out, we discovered that these numbered paragraphs, which seemed kind of weird to me that he would number his paragraphs. Actually, each one is like a pearl of wisdom. And when you break it down... It's so much easier to think about, like Teresa just did, that one paragraph. That kind of got lost in the whole shuffle yeah. of everything else when we read it. But when I look at that paragraph by itself, um, it's really interesting. And the same thing happened to me. I resisted computers. And more and more, I didn't want a computer. I just thought, like, I don't want this new toy. It's expensive. I didn't need it. I was happy before. Everybody else is getting it, jumping on the bandwagon. I'm not interested. The world around me changed. It was optional. Nobody put a gun to my head and made me buy a computer. But more and more, if I'd make a call, try to book a flight, try to get a bus ticket, try to do anything, um, either I couldn't do it or somebody like really acted put out because they had to do what they thought I should be doing for myself on their computer. So eventually the pressure got to me and I ended up with a computer. So I know exactly what Ted's talking about. And like, what do you say to your mom? Same thing with cell phones. What do you, you were talking to your mom that one time about like, uh, getting something implanted as a, Oh yeah. Like a lot of people, you know, the big thing they talk about is microchips and people and people are like, Oh, I'll never do that. And I'm like, you don't get how it's going to (laughs) happen. Like they are going to market it. They are going to have so many benefits to have this chip and they're going to be commercials that show like parents at a playground and some little girl gets kidnapped by some creepy guy in the park probably looks like ted kaczynski (laughs) and you know they they're going to be like oh thank god we had the microchip put in our child you know like i can't imagine any uh, responsible parent not choosing this thank god our little girl's back with us and cut to the scene of them playing in the playground now happy with their reunited family by the time they get done with you, they have such control of your mind. And by the time they change the world where more and more people accept this chip because of all the freaking benefits that they're going to have on it and all the things that you like use now, they're going to get more and more by the wayside. They're going to be diminished. You're going to be begging for a microchip, just like happened with cell phones, with computers, with all the rest of it. So it's not a matter of people picture like government people showing up at your door. Ma'am, you need to accept the microchip. Um <laughs> It's not going to look like that because it never has. Yeah. I mean, as you were describing that, I was, I used to work for Circuit City before they went under. That's an electronic store that used to be here in the United States. And I think it was even back then, like in the 1999-2000 timeframe, that they were really excited about a new technology where people wouldn't have to check out. In other words, you wouldn't have to go through a checkout. Now... <laughs> Fast forward to 2019 and you actually have people that are shopping for you in the store so that you can pick stuff up from the curb and just wave your smartphone in front of a screen to pay and it deducts it or charges it to a card that you have linked to that account. So, I mean, we're almost there. And I see it happening again with self-checkout. I hate (laughs) self-checkout. You know, people are saying, don't go through the self-checkout. Like, you don't work there. They're getting you to do a job for free, which is taking jobs away from other people who would otherwise need the job. More reliance on technology. So I usually stay away from that. But you know what I've noticed happening? They've got all these freaking lines in the grocery store 
one or two will be open. Right. So now if I don't want to be in the self-checkout line, I can't just go through and choose like a cashier and go through them in a normal way. I've got to get in an unusually long line. This is how it works. The thing you did before gets harder and harder, more neglected. The new thing gets more and more attractive until eventually you cave. They don't need to put a gun to your head because it works so much better if they can make you big for it. Oh, my God. What was um you had written down like tech more powerful than freedom? That oh, I, sounds I just a... wrote that down because in his uh, God, what's the title of this thing again? Industrial society. Industrial society. And its future. And its future. I mean, I'm trying not to call it a manifesto because I don't want to feed into that paradigm. But just one of my favorite. Uh, oh, that's paragraph, not page. I understand now. Yeah, one of my favorite <laughs> chapters in it, you know, it's kind of broken into sections with little subtitles, was Taking Down Industrial Society. Um, oh, no. What were you asking about? Tech more powerful. Yeah, it was technology more powerful than freedom. Um, that was my little footnote. I think it's actually hashed out more, a longer title. But I thought that had a lot of good content, so I just wrote that for myself. And it sounds like kind of what you were alluding to just then. It's, It's the ability of technology to just coax us away from our freedom mm-hmm. to replace like what we think is good, what our freedom is with technology. And it's not freedom. Can I read um, that paragraph? Yeah. Yeah. So this is another paragraph that we really enjoyed from industrial technology and its future. Industrial society. Damn it. Industrial society and its future. Paragraph 190. Any kind of social conflict helps to destabilize the system. But one should be careful about what kind of conflict one encourages. The line of conflict should be drawn between the mass of the people and the power-holding elite of industrial society, politicians, scientists, upper-level business executives, government officials, etc. It should not be drawn between the revolutionaries and the mass of the people. For example, it would be a bad strategy for the revolutionaries to condemn Americans for their habits of consumption. Instead, The average American should be portrayed as a victim of the advertising and marketing industry, which has suckered him into buying a lot of junk that he doesn't need and that is very poor compensation for his lost freedom. Either approach is consistent with the facts. It is merely a matter of attitude whether you blame the advertising industry for manipulating the public or blame the public for allowing itself to be manipulated. As a matter of strategy, one should generally avoid blaming the public. I think that one jumped out at me because I have a big problem with that. I'm always telling people, like, look what you're doing, (laughs) you know, but I get what he's saying, you know, like we need to focus on a common enemy because if you just tear people down, they're not going to like it. They're not going to want to listen to you. And it's just a bad strategy if you're actually trying to launch an effective revolution. And that is not the only time that Ted has given us, even from prison, a little outline, if you will, of some ideas of how to take down industrial technology, oh industrial God. society. Yeah, if you're actually wanting to be a part, I would say anybody that's like getting involved in some kind of activism, Ted Kaczynski should be required reading. Mm-hmm. Of all the authors that have inspired me, I've never seen a more cohesive outline of actual advice from someone who actually fought, didn't just think about fighting and encouraged other people to fight, but actually fought than what I've read from Ted Kaczynski. It is full of really profound, um, as Teresa said, advice. And another, like when we were reading his, his thesis, 
There was a lot of stuff in there about leftists and over-socialization and the power, the the need for power. And I kind of was like, okay, he's kind of going on a rant because... I don't know, maybe he's just sick of hippies or whatever. But <laughs> And who isn't? And who isn't these days? But I must admit that once I started reading more of his work and the smaller art- articles that are a little bit easier to digest, I started to get it more. He's not just ranting. He's not complaining about liberals and leftists. This is a strategy, folks, so listen up. This is from paragraph 216 of industrial society and its future. Some leftists may seem to oppose technology, but they will oppose it only so long as they are outsiders and the technological system is controlled by non-leftists. If leftism ever becomes dominant in society so that the technological system becomes a tool in the hands of the leftists, they will enthusiastically use it and promote its growth. In doing this, they will be repeating a pattern that leftism has shown again and again in the past. When the Bolsheviks in Russia were outsiders, they vigorously opposed censorship and the secret police. They advocated self-determination for ethnic minorities and so forth. Does any of this sound familiar? But as soon as they came into power themselves, they imposed a tighter censorship and created a more ruthless secret police than any that had existed under the Tsars. And they oppressed ethnic minorities at least as much as the czars had done. In the United States a couple of decades ago, when leftists were a minority in our, in our universities, leftist professors were vigorous proponents of academic freedom. But today, in those of, in those of our universities where leftists have become dominant, they have shown themselves ready to take away from everyone else's academic freedom. This is political correctness. The same will happen with leftists and technology. They will use it to oppress everyone else if they ever get it under their own control. And Ted wrote this like around the 80s, maybe into the early 90s. I feel like we've seen this come to pass that, um, you know, you think about a lot of the supposed leftist ideals like freedom of expression. And what do we see now, now that the leftists have like when they come into power, they attack any freedom of expression that they disagree with. Um, political correctness, as Ted pointed out, you know, like there's certain words like, oh my God, I just saw this the other day at where I teach. Um, there were these boys (laughs) and one boy just innocently called another boy, a boy. He was like, Hey, leave me alone, boy. And this teacher came over and like, no, that is, we do not say that. That is a derogatory term. And the boy rightly said, but he is a boy. The leftists are, as soon as they have the ability, becoming the new thought police. Um, I saw this with a little white girl at my camp last summer. She put uh, charcoal on her face, and it was not—there was no—I was there during the whole conversation. Like, her sisters, her friends were all, like, writing things. She just tried to one-up them and, like, put charcoal all over her face. Because they had won a fire challenge, they had gotten—they were the only group, and they were all girls, and they got a fire. Yeah, it was like their war paint. Yeah. So— This private school we're teaching at, which, by the way, like you rarely even see a black person. So they're very sensitive about being considered racist, I suppose. Rightly so. Um, The the management took big exception. They couldn't get out of their heads. This little girl had blackface and asked (laughs) me to ask her to wash it off. I refused. So they went straight to her and asked her to wash it off. And that was one of the most upsetting times during my summer camp last summer. Um, 
but this is that leftist mindset. You know, this is the, there's no freedom. Like people have been covering their faces with decorations and especially camouflage of all races um, since the dawn of time. But now because the leftists see it in a certain view, they won't allow anybody else to see it outside of their view. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. We could do a whole podcast about leftists. So when he started ranting about leftists, (laughs) <laughs> he found a willing audience in me. I've already run into that so often. When Trump started running for president, you know, and again, I'm not a fan of Trump, but that's when I really started seeing the leftists expose themselves in a new way where it became crystal clear to me. This whole love Trump's hate. They they posed themselves as Trump and his supporters are the hate mongers. The leftists are standing for love. <laughs> the most venomous, mean spirited, ugly things I saw posted were from the left. Um, They coined the word shaming. Suddenly shaming is a thing. But I don't see a leftist hold back at all shaming anybody that they think is wrong, which is anybody who disagrees with them. It's just a tactic that they use for their own, to exploit their own purposes, like every other regime. It doesn't matter. And that's what Kaczynski was warning his readers about. And there was another article, uh, another article that he had written, or uh, correspondence that was posted on this anarchist library website, and he was saying, "Be careful if you are bringing people into your group to be, uh, you know, rebels, to be revolutionaries against the system, because leftists will co-opt the movement." And we read those paragraphs to you because, in the in the spirit of this, he is giving us advice. Yeah, and this was a new thought for me. I I thought of leftists already as annoying distractions. Like, all right, equal rights, but if we don't fight for the environment first, we're not going to have a planet to share. And when you talk about equal rights, it's always the right to live as a white man, (laughs) which is a, a very damaging way to live. So it's never equal rights to just like go be yourself. We have to destroy some uh, culture's identity first. So what equal rights becomes for them is to live the way we do, which, you know, we like to think we're rebelling against this oppressive system in that way. But as Ted points out, it actually feeds the system. The system works the smoothest when everybody within it has what we call equal rights, because that does not mean the equal right to completely boycott the system. They can't even do it like Ted ran into because we've damaged the land so much that there's no place for them to go anymore. And the system damn well knows it. But the new thought for me was when Ted pointed out that actually, if you're not careful, leftists will join a revolution, will outnumber the people within it, and suddenly it becomes a reform movement Mm. that actually serves the system rather than any kind of meaningful revolution that might actually pit itself against the system. Destroy the system. Thus, we've had protest. We've had leftist reforms going for how many decades now? And we are closer to the brink of destruction than ever. That's not accidental. If you need a bedtime story um, by Ted Kaczynski, who doesn't? I suggest reading his article or his story, Ship of Fools. And you may recognize it if you've read any Daniel Quinn, because I think, Gumby, you said that's where you first heard the story. Yeah, actually, Daniel Quinn, there's a quote I love where he talks about a sh- the ship is sinking fast and everybody's distracted with the way, like, we have to do this. We've got to get equal rights for this. Uh, who needs to get in the boat first? Well, that's not right. They get in first. We need to find a way to do this. And by the time they get done arguing, the ship has sunk and the ship sinking is our planet that's getting destroyed. So, Ted, I don't know if independently or if one of these authors was inspired by the other, um, 
but he writes an eerily similar story. He just hashes it out a little bit differently, but the message is basically the same. And he goes he goes a little bit further in talking about how <laughs> excuse me, these folks that are on the boat that are you know, rallying and protesting for rights of this and equal that. The captain of the boat comes down or he sends his third mate and he's like, okay, okay, we hear you and we'll give you some concessions. We'll give you a little bit and that'll tide you over until, you know, you start to feel like you're being, you know, treated unequally again. And then you can peacefully protest uh, within the rules and confines of the society or of the boat. And, uh, and then we'll give you just a little bit more, but you're never going to be satisfied because the whole fucking thing stinks. It stinks. So another thing that I, you know, there, I've been reading a lot of stuff for a long time now. Um, some of the authors I mentioned, Jensen, Zerzen, and, uh, considering a lot of their views, adopted a lot of those views and delved into them and kind of, you know, they've become my views. Ted introduced me to a few different views. We were talking about the leftism. That's a different take on leftism than I've run into before. Another thing that really impressed me was I've been fighting or, you know, <laughs> compared to Ted, I don't know if I could call it fighting, but I've, I've been resisting civilization for quite some time. In one of Ted's essays, he describes, he says, don't fight civilization. What is civilization except this agricultural-based way of living that people have been doing for a long time? Now, you can fight industrial or what does he call it? Yeah, industrial society. In other words, the way the world has been shaping itself since the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s. There are ways and possibly winnable ways to fight that. But there is no strategy out there for preventing people from forming large groups and farming. And what he says is if you tried to enforce that, it would lead you back to having to use technology. Yeah, he points out what would be the way to fight that. The only way to do that is exactly reliant on the system we already have. So you would just become like the Bolsheviks, like the leftist, mm -hmm. the new tyrant. Meet the old, the new boss. He's same as the old boss, as the who says. So that was a new thought to me, and I'm still turning that over because it's been a long time that I've been saying take down civilization. But as he says, you know, find one target, focus on it, something that you have a chance of winning, rally the people around it and fight that. And I'm thinking, wow, he makes a really good point of that target being industrial society because you may feel like, well, you know, the underlying thing is civilization. And I agree with you. And I don't think Ted disagrees either. But how are you going to fight it? And maybe by taking down industrial society, a new situation will have arise that we can't picture right now. Maybe there will be a way to fight civilization after that. Exactly. But first, you know, fight the thing in front of you, which is right now the big machine that's destroying things is industrial society. Oh, and I, I think I'd like to read this quote. Um, it's by... Robert Perkinson, who I believe wrote for Boulder Weekly in a 1995 article, but Gumby got this quote from John Zerzan's essay, Who's Unabomber, in Running on Emptiness. That was the name of the book by John Zerzan. So this is the quote. Amidst the overwhelming madness of unbridled economic growth and postmodern disintegration, is such nostalgia or even such rage really crazy? For many, especially those who scrape by in unfulfilling jobs and peer longingly toward stars obscured by beaming streetlights, the answer is probably no. And for them, the Unabomber may not be a psychopathic demon. 
they may wish FC the best of luck. Yeah, and, uh, you know, reading some of this and considering that it, it makes me, well, let me read this quote first because I think this quote comes before that. Um, can you find me that other John Zerzan quote? It should be right with the one I read. Yeah, that's right here. Okay, so... We actually don't rely on a device to read from, so Gumby... Well, mostly Gumby because I have horrible handwriting. But he and I write out everything on paper so that if a if a technology device fails, which can be bloody inconvenient, but yeah. at the same time I kind of appreciate it because after I have to write like a whole long quote, I almost feel like I could quote it myself. You know, it really gets in in a way than just copy paste. But here's another uh, my last quote from John Zerzan from the same book I mentioned before, Running on Emptiness, that I really appreciated. However, I ended the speech with the suggestion that there might be a parallel between Kaczynski and John Brown. And this was at a fundraiser for, for Kaczynski after he got arrested. Hmm. Brown made an anti-slavery attack on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, in 1859. Like Kaczynski, Brown was considered deranged, but he was tired, and, but he was tried and hung. Not long afterward, he became a kind of American saint of the abolitionist movement. I offered the hope, if not the prediction, that T.K., Ted Kaczynski, might at some point also be considered in a more positive light for his resistance to industrial civilization. During the question and answer period, a Native American woman and a teenage boy expressed their respect and admiration for Kaczynski. John Zerson. So that got me thinking about today's heroes and villains and tomorrow's heroes, heroes and villains. You think about the heroes, you know, you don't have to look far to see us support America, support our troops, hear the, hear the heroes. Uh, you know, the people basically, even when you look at our fictional superheroes, as I've talked about in our podcast movies, um, our superheroes always protect the status quo. If there's a villain trying to harm civilization, um, Superman, Batman, the U.S. Army shows up. They're usually on the same side, and they're trying to protect our way of life, which we know, we all know, is destroying the world. Our way of life is even going to destroy us, much less the world itself, everything. It's, it's all going to go if we keep doing the way we're doing, and yet we call these people heroes. I suspect that if there's anybody left to talk about this, to have these conversations um, in years hence, who knows how many years, 50, 100, that the Ted Kaczynskis, the people that have tried to change things, that have gotten desperate and brave enough to stand up um, – they may be tomorrow's heroes, and the villains are going to be the people we're calling heroes today. People are going to shake their head and wonder how we ever called them heroes. Didn't you know you needed to be stopped? Why weren't more of you standing up? Why weren't more of you mailing bombs to people that are making decisions that kill your children? Um, I think this is all going to be inverted, and I think the sooner that we can wrap our minds around that and start inverting that now, the better chance we have. Um, I don't know if you have this on your notes Teresa, but Ted also talks about this alarming trend that people are losing hope. A lot of intellectuals mm -hmm. are just starting to look at the situation, and I see this everywhere. I see this on Facebook. I see this in anarchist groups, people just saying, it's just going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. And that frustrates the shit out of me because we are actively making this happen. And even if you think you've reduced your participation in how much is happening, not many people are actively fighting it. So... I don't know. When I think about, I, I, I can't fault Ted in any of the steps of what he did myself. He tried to back away from it when he saw how destructive it was. They wouldn't let him back away as they don't let any of us. Civilization found him again. Um, 
industrial society. And then he tried to fight. And to me, if you if you're gonna fight, you know the targets he picked weren't random. Um, and eventually, like he didn't want to just keep killing. It wasn't like he just took pleasure in killing. He wanted these ideas out there, and he did what he thought needed to happen to get his ideas out there. And indeed, they are. So, um, you know, my my sympathies to Ted in sitting in prison. This man who loves nature. Oh my God! Yeah. I mean, that breaks my heart. But at the same time, even now, like I guess we're gonna read that quote about the the question. You know, if he's gonna like lose hope. Oh yeah, I um, I wanted to read that because, you know, he's still writing from prison. It's not like yeah, he's... Ted is still alive and writing. That's a big message I want to leave people with. Like, it... read this if you're part of a resistance or wannabe. This is stuff you need to read. And like I said, I'll post uh, as many of the articles and essays and everything that I've found from the Anarchist Library on our Escaping Society Facebook page, which I know is technology. Ha ha. Um, something that we found interesting was Ted has a pen name. A pseudonym is a Apios Tuberosa. So maybe you can look that up and see if there's anything that we haven't found and, and posted there and, and share that with us in some way. As well as finding out it's a species name. So that's all I'll say about what that means. <laughs> so when asked if he was afraid of losing his mind in prison, Ted had this to say. No, what worries me is that I might, in a sense, adapt to this environment and come to be comfortable here and not resent it anymore. And I'm afraid that as the years go by, that I may forget, I may begin to lose my memories of the mountains and the woods. And that's what really worries me, that I might lose those memories and lose that sense of contact with wild nature in general. But I am not afraid they're going to break my spirit. And that, I believe, um, that he has fulfilled. You know, he's still sitting in prison, and he's still writing. And when you read his essays, um, he is not cowed at all. I've got that one sentence that I recorded about the uh, the violence, where he's like, he can't talk about violence. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's right here. Pretty so sure. did you have that, like, at a different... Oh, no, I was... Um, go ahead. So <laughs> it's funny, because as a prisoner, Ted can't... Um, advocate people to break the law. Otherwise, they won't let him write. So <laughs> it's kind of like comedic. You know, he's got a, a good sense of humor when you read his essays now. At one point, he writes, at this point, I must make clear that I am not recommending that anyone should damage a bulldozer unless it be his own property, nor should <laughs> anything in this article be interpreted as recommending illegal activity of any kind. I am a prisoner, and if I were to encourage illegal activity, this article would not even be allowed to leave the prison. <laughs> and that was part of his um, essay, Hit Where It Hurts. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, the essay is just hilarious because he goes on to say, and all I mean, of course, is peaceful protest uh, by yeah. illegal means, of course. Wink, wink. But at the same time, he's giving all this really <laughs> poignant, relevant information about how you might form a resistance. And what really sucks, too, is that just like we're doing this podcast, I was I was toying with the idea of, you know, sending Ted a letter. Um, I imagine he doesn't use email. Um, we don't really have a return address, and I didn't know how that would work out. Like if Ted's in his 70s now. Ted, like, sent a letter to the post office general mail. I, did, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how that would work out if I'd ever actually get a response. But um, he, he is actually, like, he's still fighting. He's still writing. 
Um, and he was even, you know, asked like to do interviews. And these were his questions back. Like these are the questions that he wanted answered before he decided to do an interview with someone. So the first question is, tell me who you are. The second question is, why should I trust you? Which, you know, it sounds like paranoid, but after all the shit that he's been through with his brother and with his lawyers, I don't blame him. And number three, affirm that you understand that I am not mentally ill. And from what I've read, I I mean, we're all, like Gumby, what did you say? We're all mentally ill. Yeah, I would say if I was going to answer that one in an interview with Ted, I'd say I can't affirm that. I think you are mentally ill, but we all are. You can't, <laughs> nobody comes out unscathed from this culture. What I would say is I don't think you're more mentally ill than the rest of us who go about our day and just act like things are going to fix themselves, like politicians and scientists who got us here are suddenly going to turn around and save us, and that it makes any damn sense to keep a nine-to-five job and pay bills while our world is just going down the tubes. That's insane. So I would say Ted is maybe more sane than other people, but I'm sure he hasn't gone through what he's gone through and not come out scarred like the rest of us. And Gumby, do you have anything else that that just came up as far as just all the stuff that we've read by Ted or anything that, you know, has been kind of turning over in your mind? Well, I mean, I see we're going and we got another long podcast here. Um, so, no, nothing that really needs to be said. Um, I guess the last thing I would like to say about Ted is... I didn't know where this was going to go when we started researching Ted. This is one of the biggest surprises for me of any of the topics we've covered in Escaping Society so far. I thought maybe I was going to find some things to support and other things to condemn, I guess. You know, I had my my old picture that the media gave me of what the Unabomber was. Now that I've read it, now that I've really considered all the facts that I could find, I think Ted is a fucking hero. (laughs) Hell Um, yeah. I am a big supporter of Ted Kaczynski. He is definitely on my short list of heroes. Um, I'm I'm not a supporter of violence because uh, in like the relishing of violence, but like I say, what is it going to take us to fight? You know, I believe nonviolence should be the first strategy, but We've tried it. It's been tried, and the world's getting worse. At what point do we stand up and fight? Because the other side is all too willing to fight, to do whatever it takes. So, yeah, I'm I'm behind Ted. And who is the lucky listener who gets to have their name attached to the Unibomb (laughs) podcast? Um, I'm going to read another. Dennis, come on down. (laughs) Dennis, I keep picking your name. I think this is kind of relevant, though, to this podcast um, in some ways. So Dennis from Jerome, Idaho writes, I'm most at home camping, 60 years old and never had the balls to live that way. Last week, I picked up a copy of the Dharma Bums. It had a big impact as a kid. I think maybe on him as a kid. Too bad I didn't follow my gut. Wild tending has caught my attention. And that was a comment that he left after homeless versus houseless. Um, I feel like with Ted, you know, walking the walk and really fighting, like he's not just writing books. He's not just giving lip service. He fucking did it. And he went all the way. And, you know, Dennis, I I don't have the balls either to do it. But like Gumby said, what is going to get us to fight? And so... Yeah, I, I think just leave it at that. Like, what is it going to take for us to start fighting? Um, what is it going to take for you to start fighting? Send us a comment on our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. 
You can also visit our Escaping Society Facebook page. We're not the band. We're Escaping Society with the uh, rocking chair on fire, the hot seat. Um, And I'll post those articles just throughout the week leading up to the podcast and thereafter because there's just so much. And as always, you know, if, if you have a comment, hell, write us about whatever's going on. When you listen to this podcast, if you're just appalled, write to us. And if you have a review for our podcast, otherwise, please. Well, not whatever's going on. If your dog has a cold, I'm, I'm okay. Not really... But whatever's going on in your mind when you listen to this podcast, it has to do with this podcast. So thanks a bunch for listening. Gumby. Be like Ted. Just undo it. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no ass.